All your base are belong to us. Hello, and welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. I'm Missy, I'm a writer, and I am just a Ned the Pie Maker in this world, uh, aspiring to be a Charlotte Charles. Uh, I'm Mary Marketer, and I don't know why, but I always get confused and think Brian Fuller did Glee. Thank God, no. I always, for some reason, it's it's the other guy who's a dumb. Maybe that's what... It's uh, a, a real Ryan dumb. Murphy? Yeah, I is that his so. name? The American Horror Story guy. Yeah, I, yeah. I think because he does American Horror Story, it's because he's gay. Imagine, <laughs> imagine American Horror Story if Brian Fuller did it though. Oh, it would slap. Yeah, so I think that's why I get confused. Um, but I always I'm like, no, he did not do Glee. Mm-hmm. Although it would have been really interesting. I would have watched it. It wouldn't have been children. It would have been adults. It would have been Kristen Chenoweth. Uh, Pushing Daisies is a 2007 show by Brian Fuller, who you may know from Hannibal as well as Dead Like We, we talked about Hannibal. So One day assume. we'll probably do Dead Like Me. Oh, God, I love Dead Like Me. Dead Like Me was my introduction to Brian Fuller. I remember um, when you became obsessed with it. I was obsessed. Uh, anyway, he did Dead Like Me, Wonderfalls, and American Gods. Current, well, he left he leaves a lot of shows after one season maybe he under maybe he has the the um jj abrams issue where he doesn't know how to end it but he also knows how to stop i you know what i think it is is he leaves almost entirely from my understanding over creative differences and i think he's really like he is settled on his vision and studio yeah studio meddling he's not about it Hmm. um pushing daisies is one that he actually was with it for both seasons uh Hmm. but he left dead like me after one season hannibal i think he was with it for the whole thing Wonderful has only got one season and like half of it didn't air. Hmm. Um, anyway, pushing he's daisies. He's Star Trek now, though. He was. He oh, he's ha- not doing it anymore. He left he after left. one season. He's still a producer, but he's oh, not. He's not okay. the showrunner anymore. What's um, he doing now? I don't know. He's just living his life being gay. He's posting a lot about horror movies, as he always does. Mm-hmm. In all caps. I don't understand why he's po- always posting in all caps. But... I would love for him to do like a horror horror movie. Yeah, I w- I know it would. Be... Oh, he would do such a good folk horror. Yeah, It'd I would really love it. Good. Um, so, uh, Pushing Daisies follows Ned the Pie Maker, uh, who doesn't appear to have a last name. Um, he has the, it's the Pie Maker, middle name, the last name Pie Maker. Mm -hmm. Um, he has the unusual ability to touch a dead person and return them to life for 60 seconds before another person will die in their stead. Uh, he uses this ability along with Emerson Codd, a private investigator to solve murders or strange deaths to make enough money to keep his pie shop open. Uh, on one case, he discovers the murder victim is Charlotte Charles, his childhood neighbor and like first kiss and first love um and he chooses not to touch her again they fall in love but they can never touch or she will die for good along with olive snook who works at ned's pie place the pie hole the characters solve mysteries have interpersonal drama and are generally charming and wonderful and i can't be objective about this show because it's my favorite ever (laughs) but you will be no i won't be objective are you kidding me (laughs) fuck objective i can't do it um one thing to note about this show is that it was in no small part a victim of the necessary and good Writers Guild of America strike in two th- from, I think, 2007-2008, uh, in which all members, which is about 12,000 people, uh, working in screenwriting, went on strike for higher pay, among other things. Also affected the te- television industry Forever. Forever. Yeah. Uh, With screenwriters on strike, new episodes of TV were not being produced, which, no joke, is why we have so much fucking reality TV today. Reality TV existed before the writer's strike, but not like this. We had, like, real world, road rules... 
uh, Real Housewives of the OC existed because of Desperate Housewives. And the popularity of the OC. Yeah. Um, so this reality TV could be produced without writers. And after the strike, it could theoretically be cheaper because you didn't have to pay the writers as increased pay. Uh, what is now the first season of Pushing Daisies would have originally been the first half of the first season. Oh, really? But it was interrupted by the strike. Uh, when it came back, its momentum seemed to have slowed and it was canceled before the final three episodes were shown. Because it was problematic. Because it was problematic. Um, <laughs> cancel so culture gay. strikes again. Uh, those episodes were eventually aired elsewhere and provide like not a conclusion in any real sense. Uh, but there's at least some narrative satisfaction at the end. It's all very strange, but it ended up with a large cult following. Uh, Brian Fuller has repeatedly said he would continue if he could, and he keeps asking us if he can, and it hasn't happened yet. I'm surprised. I feel like we're in a good place to... I think it's just too expensive. Then just don't. And people don't want to take a risk on it again. But I Netflix think. would take a risk on five million bad shows. Yeah, but only for one season. They are, they are, they are getting the, they are, Netflix is finally. They are reaping what feel, they have yeah, sown. They're finally feeling the bad decisions they mm. have made. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is something I've been sitting on for years, which is that Pushing Daisies is inver inverted noir. Have you ever seen this? Like anyone also argue this? I have seen people write about Pushing Daisies as noir and it's in the noir influences, but not in the way that I'm going to talk about, which I think is quite specific. So here's your, uh, here's my master's thesis. Yeah, here's I will your accept thesis. your honorary degree at any time. <laughs> Uh, I say inverted as opposed to reversed deliberately. Uh, reversed implies a flip-flopping, uh, whereas I think many of Pushing Daisies' features actually align very neatly with noir, just in a way that puts a fresh spin on it. Uh, there is no simple, like, um, like, femme, um, fatale reversal. Like, you don't have suddenly a man leading a woman down a path of destruction. We'll get into what these things mean in a minute, but, um, it's not that easy, right? They don't just simply flip-flop and call it good, it's doing something I think very clever. Um, and it's not as simple as the show being about solving murders with a bright and cheery aesthetic rather than a dark and dreary one. Um, it goes the, the like playfulness with the idea of noir goes a lot deeper than that, in my opinion, um, because not everybody is as obsessed with film noir as I am. I'll give a very simple primer. Uh, film noir arose in the early to mid 20th century, largely in American film and was derived from film techniques pioneered in German expressionist film, as well as popular hard-boiled crime novels of the time period. I love the hard-boiled. Yeah, it's just like the really... Uh, eggy. Eggy, yeah. <laughs> really intense and gritty style of crime writing that was popular at the time. I don't think of hard-boiled eggs as gritty. I know, it's hard to explain. <laughs> like, it makes sense to me, but I can't... But you're entrenched in Yeah, I'm entrenched in it, so I can't explain why. Um... Eggy. Eggy. Uh, they are often both literally and figuratively dark, using a specific style of lighting to create stark shadows that came to define the genre visually as time went on. Uh, film noir often deals with corruption in many forms. The protagonists, who are often anti-heroes at best, uh, run into police corruption, manipulative women, wrongful death, and typically end up worse off than they started. Uh, kind of like we are now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's commonly associated with private investigators, beautiful women who lie called femme fatales, which means deadly women, uh, smoking, slatted blinds, and fast-talking characters with lots of double entendres, largely to d dodge the Hayes Code, because the Hayes Code restricted a lot of things that you could portray on TV, which is why when you watch film noir, they all talk very fast, and they use a lot of slang, and it's because they were talking about things that if the Hayes 
like the board that judged whether a film was acceptable or not, um, if they knew what they were really saying, it probably wouldn't made it, have made it past. So the dialogue mm-hmm. is very clever. Um, some of the most popular examples are the Maltese Falcon and the Big Sleep, uh, later on getting into things like Kiss Me Deadly and Vertigo, which is actually directly referenced in Pushing Daisies. Like there's an extended scene referencing Vertigo, which I think is in the episode Bitches. Um, there's obviously some service level re- referencing a film noir, right? The show follows unconventional investigators solving murders that tracks with film noir. Um, there is, in fact, a lot of death. Uh, there are visual references such as em- Emerson Codd's office itself feels very film noir. Um, the slatted b- blind shots in Girth, uh, where you have uh, Olive kind of uh, approaching Emerson for to to investigate these deaths, um, and you have the repeated Vertigo references, and I think it's bitches where um, Emerson gets yeah uh, Simone drugs him, and he has like that <laughs> spinning into the void. Oh. That's a reference directly to Vertigo. Um, it's clear that film noir is an influence here, but if you just looked at Pushing Daisy's screenshots, noir would not be the first genre to come to mind, right? Um, if you go a little deeper, there are still resonant themes, but they're all twisted in different directions. One of my favorites is that Chuck is literally a femme fatale, literally translates to fatal woman, a woman, in this case, a woman returned from the dead. Uh, Emerson's nickname for her, dead girl, is essentially a literal, like, literal somewhat mistranslated term for her role in a film noir right he's literally like askew but literally calling her a femme fatale a dead girl uh and if you zoom out she does serve the typical femme fatale role in that her entrance into the protagonist in this case ned in her entrance into the protagonist's life pushes him out of the realm he's comfortable with and into a radically different one it just so happens that in film noir this is usually the the woman subverting the expected role of a woman and dragging him into the path of death and destruction. Um, women are bad. Because women are bad. Uh, in this case, you know, it just so happens that it's a better place for him to be than you would expect from a film noir. It plays straight with the tropes and it doesn't quite subvert them because it doesn't lead you to believe that it's a noir at all, right? It makes visual reference to noir, but when you're looking at it, you're not like, oh, this is a noir parody or this is a noir subversion. Instead, it's playing a noir pretty straight. It's just taking you in new directions. It's really interesting because I know we'll talk about this later like with um, the queer stories, but it feels like noir is the perfect example, like the perfect way to tell those queer stories because... It is. I mean, the talk, like getting past the haze code mm-hmm. and like the way that you speak and all that stuff, it really, it really does track. Noir is like, it's... Noir is a really complicated genre because you really kind of have to get into it to appreciate how much of it is in fact so you really deeply queer. It. Yeah, um, it's not. I, when I say it's deeply queer, I don't mean necessarily in a positive sense. I mean it's literally about like male anxiety is about attraction to maleness. Um, like at its at its deepest, that's happening there. Um, noir is also usually a very cynical genre, which is obviously not true at all of Pushing Daisies, which is some si- sometimes so quirky and cute and bright that it puts people right off. Um, yeah, there were times when I was like, I'm really sick of Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I felt the first... I didn't like Chuck the first time I watched the show. Yeah, she got a little too much. I love her now. I would. I love her so much. She's good, but I came out of it absolutely loving Olive. That's fair. You, you're very Olive. I love Olive. I Like, justice for Olive sooner. <laughs> um... Pushing Daisies is not optimistic, given that there is no way out of Ned and Chuck's 
predicament. Like there's just no way out of it. Uh, murders will always happen. Not everybody can have the happy ending that they want, etc. But it's not cynical, right? I don't think that it's like relentlessly optimistic, but I also don't think it's cynical. Half glass, half full. Yeah. No- dead, full of dead. Yeah. Uh, noir often explores ex- estrangement and distance from the norm or society as a whole, usually as the protagonists become increasingly disillusioned. Um, they typically start out, quote unquote, normal or normal ish, uh, but stray increasingly far from that space as they're exposed to more and more kinds of degeneracy, crime and so on. Um, in Pushing Daisies, the characters all begin in a place of distance from the norm. Ned is just like all kinds of messed up. Uh, Emerson is quite cynical and closed off. Uh, Chuck is literally back from the dead and unable to connect with her family. Olive also had a difficult upbringing and has unrequited love for Ned. The answer in mourning and distant from everybody, etc. Like nobody is in a good place here. Um, instead of going further from society as we expect from noir or instead of coming back to society as we might expect from a fairy tale in, in the Hollywood sense, not in like the grim brother sense. Um, another genre with, in, fairy tales are another genre with a huge influence on pushing daisies neither of those things happen right the characters come together but really in their own group or in like subgroups as opposed to back to society as a whole um and this is a quote from a guide to film noir genre by roger ebert um then this is part of a 10 point list so this is just points nine and ten uh nine relationships in which love is only the final flop card in the poker game of death 10, the most American film genre because no society could have created a world so filled with doom, hate, fear, and betrayal unless it were essentially naive and optimistic. And this is extremely funny to me in the context of Pushing Daisies in which arguably death is only the final flop card in the poker game of death. I'm sorry, death is only the the final flop card in the poker game of love. Uh, For context, in poker uh, poker that uses community cards, so like Texas Hold'em and a lot of other... I know nothing about poker. That's okay. There's different varieties of poker. Five card is like the one that I grew up playing where you don't have community cards. In Texas Hold'em, you have your own hand, but the community also shares a series of cards. Mm. And that's what the flop is. The flop is the the community cards. Um, it's the stack of cards. It's not the stack. It's in the like in the center of the table, there will be a series of cards that everybody is playing with. Okay. And as well as what's in your hand. And that card is... Those cards in the center are the flop. Okay. And that's shared. So for in Poker with Community Cards, the flop consists of the cards that everybody plays with in addition to their own hand. The final flop card is the last card that the dealer flips. So that determines the... Um, that determines how the play is going to go, essentially. Uh, so to say that love is only the final flop card in the poker game of get- death is to say that love may win or lose you the hand, but the game is still death, right? That's mm-hmm. what, that is what Ebert ascribes to noir. Do you agree with him? I think that that's a fair interpretation of noir. Uh, in Pushing Daisies, on the other hand, death is the thing that may win or lose you the hand. That's literally how Chuck and Ned get together. Her death is what brings her back into his life. But the game itself is love, not death. Hmm. Death is, again, death is the final flop card that determines the the direction of the game. But the game itself is love, not death. So inverse noir. Yeah. Um, likewise, Ebert writes that only a country as naive and optimistic as America could come up with a genre as cynical and doomed as noir. Uh, tell me this show about death and grisly murder and greed with the relentlessly twee tone. Isn't this description inverted? Yeah. You can't. Like, if if it came out that Brian Fuller read this description was like, ha 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 ha, I'm going to write the opposite of this, I would not be surprised. Um, I'm introducing all of this to you now so we can talk about film noir broadly and how it relates to the show, but much of this is going to come back later. So just like... 
Store it away. Just store it away. Before we get in a little box. Yeah. Before we get too far in, I do want to address that much like film noir and just TV in the mid to late 2000s, (laughs) Pushing Daisies is not without flaws. Uh, Orientalism and fat phobia in particular are both unfortunately pervasive in the show. Orientalism like hardcore. It's so bad. It's hardcore. Uh, So when it comes to Orientalism, I don't just mean the presence of like East Asian clothes or decorations. Uh, The term as defined by Edward Said refers to how the West treats the East using cultural signifiers to suggest that the East is inferior, underdeveloped and backwards. Uh, in the case of Pushing Daisies, I feel like the use of use of East Asian clothing, typically in the ANSA's wardrobe, but also in Dim Sum, Lose Sum, serves to mark something as particularly kooky or exotic. Like, that seems to be what it's signaling. It's There's so much of it. I, I'd be curious if the show continued, if that didn't become a plot point. Yeah, it's really strange. It is, like in this, yeah, like you said, it's not just in one place. No, it's it's repeated. Especially like when you when you see when they go to the, the water show and the the pagodas on the head like what the fuck well, and, the, and just the juxtaposition of the American the two mm-hmm. American uh, swimmers yeah like it's just seemed I, I that's when I like I noticed it through the whole thing but a part that like really stuck out to me was that part of like they are dressed often in, in those types of clothing and then here we have two other synchronized swimmers who are f- straight up American and right. they're also the almost said the devil <laughs> That's how I feel about America right now. They're also like the villains in that. In that yeah. Story. It feels I like I think I think the intent is to use uh, the like East Asian clothing and decorations as a means of signifying like the interesting other as normal. And like the mm-hmm. hyper America patriotism shit is like disapproving. Mm hmm. But at the same time, like you can still you can attempt to do that and still be racist about it, yeah. you know. Um, I don't think these. Oh, and also, it's just deeply weird to have Fan Bing Wu become a Confederate <laughs> soldier. <laughs> I, that was weird. What the? I hell? never even thought about that, and then I was reading the outline, and I was like, "What? <laughs> what the fuck?" <laughs> Uh, I don't think these things come from a place of malice or like intentionally like trying to make um, Asian cultures look weird. Um, but it is so pervasive in Pushing Daisies that you cannot not remark on it, right? Like, it's a yeah. glaring issue. Especially with the ants. Um, what is going on with the using and abusing Chinese clothing? And I say that, I say using and abusing deliberately because, like, okay, the ants are wearing, like, Asian-influenced outfits. And we can, you know, we can talk about cultural appropriation there and what's meant by it and whether it is appropriation and what the context of 2007 was, et cetera, et cetera. That's all one thing. But hey, what the fuck is going on with Ch- with Chuck and ne- and not Ned's, Chuck and Olive's outfits and dim sum lose some. I remember saying that and going, oof. The makeup in particular. <laughs> it's so bad. Like it's so, I, uh, I, that part when that happened, I was just, I just, I couldn't even believe it. It really tarnishes my, uh, my feelings about that episode, which otherwise is a pretty solid episode. Yeah. Like the concept is really fun. The, uh, I love Emerson and Ned's disguises. They're so <laughs> fucking funny. Um, but yo, what the fuck? Yeah, that was with weird. those outfits. Um, why are we still drawing lines between Chinese immigrants and illegal gambling? Like, no. 
Um, why is Vivian wearing a pagoda on her head? Well, they're both wearing <laughs> they're a pagoda wearing... on their head. I wrote that before I got to the episode where they were both wearing the pagodas on their head. Like, what the fuck? And also, it, like, why? That can't swim in that. Yeah, it's so weird. And I think the thing is they're aiming for whimsy here, but painting the East as whimsical is Orientalism. Yeah. Um, it may not be conscious and Fuller and all the people that worked on the show, costume designers, writers, etc. They may not have had any ill intent, but it is worth asking why they felt the need to do this with East Asia symbols and traditions and characters over and over and over again if it was one time i would be like oh rough mm. but it's it's over and over and over and it's just kind of like buddy you don't have to do this you can come up with a different symbol um i think fat phobia is maybe less vis- visibly present especially mm-hmm. because chai mcbride is a big dude and is a likable if mm-hmm. prickly character in the series um but there aren't a lot of other fat characters and when they do show up uh, it's not great. So one of the early episodes does have Emerson uh, getting stuck in the window a la Winnie the Pooh in a scene that is like not super offensive, but is a little distasteful. It's kind of just like... Why? It's funny that Emerson would get stuck in a window and be compared to Winnie the Pooh because it's Emerson, right? But it's also literally about his body. Mm-hmm. And he had made like a disparaging remark I think about fatness earlier in the episode if I remember correctly. I could be wrong, so don't quote me on that. But like it just feels distasteful. Uh and later on you have the episode Comfort Food in which a man Ugh. on a scooter who I assumed was disabled was in fact a murderer because the Colonel Sanders stand-in's chicken made him fat. That was the worst. That was really bad. Yeah. You also have the part when Ned starts, like, when he decides not to use his power anymore, uh, and he starts using regular fruit in his pies, and he starts eating them himself, and he says, I'm going to get fat. But then he says that with this look of excitement on his face. Super doesn't surprise me. So I was very, like... It doesn't surprise me because, uh, like, I see this so often. People, obviously, like, fat people will get... Um, stigmatized or just uh, just treated terribly mm-hmm. but when a thin person like eats a lot of food like oh, I'm a fat kid today like I see that so often that's true but he like seems it seemed to me like he was genuinely excited at the prospect of becoming fat I don't think it was that I think it was just really happy to like eat his food and yeah. the, like and the idea of being like able to do that Mm -hmm. but like that that whole mentality super doesn't surprise me because i see it so often of like like oh i'm gonna do a fat kid thing or um, that's true but that's not fat but that's not what he's saying because that's like coming from a place of being down on fatness and he seems like genuinely excited at the prospect of becoming fat i've seen people be like i'm doing a fat kid thing and be genuinely happy about the things they're eating but i think that's still coming from a different place Hmm. Like, to say I'm doing a fat kid thing is intentionally to distance myself from fatness, right? It is saying I am doing a thing that is not me. Hmm. That's different from saying I'm going to become fat, aren't I, with a smile on your face. Yeah, I still I still feel like that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, fatness in media and in film noir specifically is often used to suggest criminality and excess. There simply aren't a lot of fat characters in Pushing Daisies, but when we do see them, the messages being sent are typically criminality, undesirability, or foolishness. Uh, it's over, like it just falls into like these tropes about fatness in general that go unquestioned in a show which otherwise is very kind about difference, and I think that makes it stand out uh, to an even greater degree. Mm-hmm. Um, the point here is that this is my favorite show of all time, but it's not immune to criticism. It could do better, even as I really, really, really enjoy most of what's happening in it. I enjoy the majority of both Dim Sum, Lose Sum, and Comfort Food. Did you recognize in the Comfort Food who the muffin girl was? Of course. <laughs> of course. Absolutely. She's in a lot of things. She is in a lot of things. She's the girl from, she's the 
teacher, the teacher and the dance teacher yeah. from Donnie Darko. Yes. I can't. She's in a bunch of stuff. I she can't is what in else. a bunch of stuff. Also, Taylor Townsend's in the show. Yeah. A lot of people are in that show. Yes. Uh, notably, a lot of queer actors are in the show, hmm. which I am going to use to transition to Great. the majority theme of the episode, which is queerness. So we've established Pushing Daisies as, as a inverse noir. Do you think that's a fair interpretation that I have made? I think so. My very little knowledge and the things that you have said, I would say that's accurate. It, it tracks at least. Um, the fact that it's n- inverse noir itself is interesting to me, but I think we can go a step further by bringing in some outside knowledge. First, Brian Fuller's gay. This is not a secret. <laughs> I don't know how long Brian Fuller has been out, but an article from in an article from The Advocate, which is titled, It Took Brian Fuller 14 Years to Get a Clearly Gay Character on TV, uh, which is written by Daniel Reynolds, uh, this article outlines how every one of Fuller's original shows, the ones that he pioneered because he also worked on like star trek voyager and heroes and that kind of stuff which were not his original ip um it outlines how every one of fuller's original shows have been as queer as the studios would let him make them Uh, i actually regretted reading this article Mm -hmm. because it stole my thesis right out from under me with this quote you don't know how gay pushing daisies was. you didn't know how gay pushing daisies was because the gay was never sexualized it was simply queer said fuller who credited gay icons like christian chenoweth susie kurtz and beth grant for quote saturating every fiber unquote with queerness uh fuller said pushing daisies was quote systematic systemically gay aesthetically gay but not narratively gay unquote thankfully for me fuller did not elaborate so we will take it from here (laughs) um the show pushing daisies comes from a lot of places i'm sure like there's a lot of influences on it we've talked about noir we've talked about briefly about fairy tales uh but fuller in later years has actually talked about how it was directly inspired by the aids crisis uh, and this is a quote from 10 years later, Brian Fuller would drop everything to make more Pushing Daisies, which is by Jennifer Still, who writes a metaphor for what exactly? Though viewers may not have picked up on it, Fuller was partially inspired by his experience as a gay man living through the AIDS epidemic. Chuck and Ned can't have skin to skin contact for a generation of people. Quote, unprotected sex meant death for so long, says Fuller. Quote, there was an interesting gay metaphor in Pushing Daisies that was at the root of my understanding of these characters. Ten years ago, there was danger associated with intimate touch. I think a lot of those things were probably at the back of my mind as I was creating a universe where something is so simple, something where something so simple, something that common in heterosexual relationships was something that would kill you, unquote. So this doesn't make the show itself an example of queer representation, right? When you look at the show, there are gay characters on the show. How out they are is never know debatable but there are gay characters on pushing daisies but the core cast does not read on first glance as gay um or queer in any in any form uh but what i want to challenge all of us to do with this this episode of the podcast is to understand queerness as something that is present in pushing daisies without being explicit Um, This is ostensibly a show about heterosexual relationships with the main cast not being textually queer, right? But when you really pay attention to what's happening and how the characters feel about it, this show feels an awful lot like a queer experience. Not like the queer experience, because I don't know that there is such a thing as the like definitive queer experience. Right. Uh, But I still see reflections of my experience in it. I see the experiences of my friends in it and so on. Um, I think a lot of people watching this show would not have jumped straight from Ned and Chuck's situation to the AIDS crisis, but that reading is there. And when you have that, it's like the potential of the show opens up for you. Yeah, absolutely. I, when I when I read that about halfway through watching it, it totally changed the way in which I consumed and like read things and gave a lot more context. And you like 
like even just the things that they say I picked up on in a way that made more sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you like the breeder joke? Because I did. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) There were a lot of, they got really sexual. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It got really sexual, especially with Emerson and the one lady. (laughs) She's like, come. Uh (laughs) I was like, wow, they're just fucking. It was very, again, very film noir with how much they were able to execute under the guise of just like wordplay. Yeah. Um, I I love when media is like, able to fly under the radar in their very great news for you about film noir uh so that's what i want to explore in this episode the potential readings of this show as queer without being textually queer in the sense that it's not a show about gay characters right but it might be a gay show um confusing yeah So to return to film noir for a moment, one of the many anxieties that shaped the era, that particular era of film, was masculinity. Um, Men returned home from World War II to find women working and holding more authority in daily life. Absolutely abhorrent. Yes. War itself no doubt broke down assumptions of what masculinity should be, right? Because we're talking about the uh, the return after World War II, which was you know, horrific. Also, totally a lot of men had sex with other men. Yeah, of course. Uh, In noir, the femme fatale figure is often constructed as dangerous because she acts as we expect a man to act. That is, that is where the, like, kind of where the femme fatale comes from. Absolutely abhorrent. She is typically aggressive, sexually, and just in her personal life. She is cold. She doesn't love. She's not nurturing. Um, those are the features that you expect to find in a femme fatale. Is Gone Girl? Gone Girl is, I think that Gone Girl, I haven't really analyzed it through this lens, but I think you could definitely make an argument for Gone Girl as neo-noir. Yeah, he definitely ends up worse than he started. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's such a good movie. I love Gone Girl. It was really good. Um, Despite the fact that the that the woman is like betraying gender conventions, the male protagonist is attracted to her in spite of that, threatening his masculinity because men should not be attracted to maleness. This attraction is what leads him into danger, darkness, and often to death. You can read film noir that follows that very traditional structure as almost a parable against homosexuality. Except... One of the most famous film noirs, Double Indemnity, was originally intended to feature a queer love story at its center. Interesting. Uh, The relationship between Walter Neff and his boss, Barton Keyes. Um, Neff is seduced by the dangerous Phyllis Dietrichson. uh, And in the original ending, Neff is sentenced to death and his boss, Barton Keyes, watches and leaves very sadly. Like, not just like, oh, my employee. My lover. Really. Um... While they couldn't depict an actual gay relationship due to the Hayes Code, Neff is consistently shown lighting Keys' a cigar for him, which is an intentional <laughs> invocation of phallic imagery. Like the in um in the the cut ending, uh, Keys leaves the building where Neff has just been has just been killed, and pulls a cigar out of his pocket and looks at it sadly. Throws it down his throat. He has no one left to light his cigar for him. In the the actual ending, it's been a while since I watched Double Indemnity. It's not quite so like forlorn, but it's still like, I think one of his last acts is to light the cigar for keys, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong on that. It's been a while. Um, So in one sense, queerness is deviant and degenerate in that it leads to death. But in another, the femme fatale leads the male protagonist away from a healthy relationship and towards death herself. 
right? It's his attraction to her femininity that leads towards death. Billy Wilder, the director of Double Indemnity, was for for everything I know about him and I think for what the general public knows about him, was straight. But he's also the director of Some Like It Hot, a movie about two men in drag falling in love and one of them, beca- not with each other, falling in love with Marilyn Monroe. Um, well, there, there's a lot going on in that movie. Poly relationship. There's a lot going on in that movie that's difficult to articulate. But one of the characters is known for being shy and like uh, very closed off until he starts dressing in drag, at which point he comes out and becomes a much more like full version of himself. Mm-hmm. Um, later in life, I guess Billy Wilder made some not so great representations of queer people. Um, so interesting. But he also got very uh, cynical in his old age. Uh, he was so Billy Wilder was is Jew- was Jewish. And so he from my understanding, identified a lot with the stories of outsiders. Oh, I see. Um, and so he may have been making, intentionally making films that reference like queerness without like being queer himself simply because the idea of outsiders was something he identified with. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a quote from Nobody Loves a Fat Man, Masculinity and Food and Film Noir, which is by Christopher E. Forth. Um, in such films, male control is often more aspirational than actual. And as Abbott puts it, on the page and on the screen, hard-boiled masculinity requires, quote, constant maintenance and re- reconstitution, unquote. Sexuality is often identified as the chief cause of potential male collapse. The notorious figure of the tempting fatal woman is usually viewed as consciously or unconsciously enabling an otherwise constrained male desire, thus precipitating the hero's almost inevitable loss of control. The inner turmoil of the hero is often mirrored in the grotesque villains whose bodies bear and represent not only their own corruption, but also the potential collapse of the protagonist as well. So again, we have this inversion, right, of what is expected in film noir and what happens in Pushing Daisies. Uh, In the case of Pushing Daisies, the femme fatale does in fact cause the collapse of the protagonist's construction of masculinity, but it's for the better. Like mm-hmm. Ned is clearly better off by the end of the series than he, he was looks at the beginning. Less and less sick. In he the beginning, does. he looks like he's constantly like has a cold. Yeah, like he's maybe is in cold sweats. Yeah, like, he's having a bad time. <laughs> His eyes are red sometimes. Yeah. Uh, Chuck enables Ned's constrained desire to actually live his life and get close to people. He is resistant to it, but it happens over time. Um, I actually read this essay because I was curious about the representation of fat bodies in film noir. So that's what it is referring to with the phrase grotesque grotesque villains. Uh, But in the case, even in the case of Bushing Daisies, there are grotesque bodies, the bodies of the people that he brings back to life, which are usually disfigured or mangled in some way. I couldn't look at them. I think the worst one for me was the 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 chicken fried guy. That was pretty bad. That one was I I think for me it was the bees. That's pretty bad too. That's pretty bad too. But the the guy, ugh, I can't even think it's, about it. It's pretty bad. Um, I think you can read into this as well. Ned lives a very closed off life without being close to anybody, and I don't know that he fears death necessarily. Necessarily, but each one of these people has a story that is cut dramatically short. They serve as a sort of memento mori for him. Uh, I think the fact that their bodies are mangled is also interesting since Ned's ability makes him unwilling to touch people. Uh, The fact that Chuck comes along and gives them dignity and humanity after they die is good for Ned, too, who thinks of himself as damaged and separate from humanity. Even if sometimes she's just getting in the way. (laughs) Uh, Establishing these people as human, even after they have died and their bodies are grotesque, is one of the many important things that Chuck does to bring Ned out of his shell and just more generally improve the world because she brings humanity to these people who have died and whose very humanity has been extinguished. Which Emerson's like doesn't give a shit. Emerson does not give one shit at all. 
Um, I would not in- identify noir as like inherently a queer genre, especially because a lot of it is homophobic. Uh, but double indemnity is just one example of where queerness is a potential reading of the events, even if it can fly under the radar. Um, likewise, Pushing Daisies isn't about queer relationships in the most literal sense. Ned and Chuck are the primary couple. Olive loves Ned and Emerson has relationships with women. I'm hesitant, as I always am, to say that Ned, Chuck and Olive are straight. Um, Ned clearly says he's had girlfriends in the past, which I would like to draw attention to, as I'm pretty sure that's literally what Lee Pace said when questioned about his his sexuality as well. Um, Chuck hasn't been with anybody but Ned, and Olive ostensibly only has feelings for Ned initially, but I don't know. She didn't seem opposed to the Norwegian lady hitting on her. That's true. I'm pretty sure Digsby and Pigsby are in love. Yeah, they're they're in it. Um, Emerson does tell his mother that he's not gay. He says that specifically. Uh, and he also doesn't notice the double entendre when she says that someone is a Cosmo-drinking shopaholic pause queer. Uh, and Emerson replies, you're right, it is odd. Uh, <laughs> Those are the types of things that I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, And his mother gives him this weird look in response as if she knew what she was saying, but Emerson doesn't get it. Um, So she's queer. That was that was kind of what I got from it. Um, Or she really thought her son was. Yeah. Get it. And that comes back later because she's like, what do you or maybe it's before that. She says, what were you implying with this? Are you implying that I made you gay? But when she when he sees when she sees that the protagonist of his book is a young girl. Yeah. 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 I don't think that you have to be queer to pick up on this, but the fact that Emerson doesn't pick up on it leads me to believe that he is both the straight man in the comedy sense, which Mm -hmm. is usually the person in a comedy duo who doesn't react to the partner's eccentricities and who sets up the jokes, or in this case, the person who behaves without whimsy in a very whimsical world. So it leads me to believe that he is the straight man in the comedy sense and literally the straight man as in heterosexual in this Yeah wonderful array token straight man yeah that's how it feels to me i choose to interpret the other characters lack of explicit statements about their sexualities to mean that their whatever flavor of queer makes most sense for them Uh, but again that isn't me saying that the show is great queer representation because it's not right there is no like among the main cast there is no explicit queer representation um but representation isn't the be-all end-all of what queer narratives can be And while Pushing Daisies could have had both a queer narrative and queer characters in a different world, meaning not the world that we live in, I think the queer narrative angle is plenty interesting. I would have just been impossible to create at that time. Yeah. Like, literally, they wouldn't have. Literally not able to. Literally, they wouldn't let him. (laughs) He tried. Literally not able to. Yeah. So this is a quote from Pushing Daisies Use Quirkiness to Bridge Time and Queer History, which is by Kyle Turner, who writes, As Richard Dyer writes in his book Pastiche, the term is used to describe, quote, a kind of imitation you are meant to know is imitation, unquote. Works of pastiche, quote, interrogate the truth value of the medium they're working in, unquote, and, quote, mm-hmm. acknowledge the emotional truth, unquote, of, <laughs> quote, past forms, unquote, as well as their, quote, reprehensible lies, unquote. Additionally, can I he- ask a question really quickly? Uh-huh. What is pastiche? Uh, pastiche is, is that idea of imitation that you are meant to know is imitation. Okay, okay, okay. It's distinct from parody. It's distinct from is it a simulation. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, additionally, he writes that Todd Haynes's Circean Cir- melodrama, Far From Heaven, quote, sets in play our relationships with the past, unquote, and, quote, suggests the way feeling is shaped by culture, 
unquote. I believe that's the last series of quote unquotes. Uh, Dyer's unpacking of pastiche, particularly in relation to modes of queer art making, suggests that replication of form, but a subversion of tone or context puts it in conversation with those original works while asserting its own aesthetic voice. Pastiche is often critiquing the more normative source texts that are reflective of restrictive social and political norms. Throughout the book, Dyer stresses the occasional difficulty in identifying pastiche and delineating it from its sister forms like parody and plagiarism. But its closeness is the point to be the thing and yet apart from it to infiltrate is a cornerstone of queerness. I think this is like part of the reason why a noir genre is perfect for this. Mm hmm. So in academic queer theory, to queer, as in to ver- the to verb. To queer or not to, to queer. To queer or not to queer. Um, to queer, as in to the verb, to queer, uh, means to take something and look at it through a new lens that makes it strange or unusual in some way. In the case of Pushing Daisies, what Turner is arguing here, along with Dyer, who writes about pastiche, is that the show queers noir through the use of pastiche. The intentional invocation of noir tropes and visual styles draws your attention to it and this is to quote that interrogates the truth value of the genre as well as their reprehensible lies. The truth value could include things like anxieties about masculinity and Ned's and Emerson's cases, right? They're both men, but Ned can be read as weak and even effeminate at times. Mm -hmm. And Emerson comes off as strong and brash, but loves to knit and deeply misses his daughter, both of which subvert mainstream masculinity and racist assumptions about black fatherhood. Mm -hmm. Like when you have, you know, a, a daughter without a father, the the cultural assumption is that the father has left or been imprisoned. In this case, uh, been kept away. Gina Torres's character, whose Who's name I've ev- also in everything. Yeah, she has kept Penny, their daughter, from him. It is not. Uh, he has not left. He He's, cannot find her. Yeah, he cannot find her, despite being. A, a private detective. <laughs> well, it's, it's a nobody's dead, so <laughs> he can't he can't have Ned touch somebody and find out what happened to Penny. Um, putting these two characters at the center of a noir is both subversive of the genre and a bit playful, making it a form of pastiche, which by nature of the subversion being about gender, sexuality, and so on, makes that action one of queering. Um, and I mean this with all sincerity. Once you read the show as queer... All of the triteness, the things that feel like cliched dialogue, take on a new tone. It's totally true. I totally, I totally agree. Yeah, when Chuck and Ned have the conversation in the truck of in the trunk of Lila Robinson's car about their relationship being hard, Chuck brings up that it's difficult, that they can't touch one another, um, and she wonders why do people fall in love even though it's so hard and it's so vulnerable and so scary. And Ned replies, "Why love something? Because we can." That no longer reads as trite to me mm. when I'm considering it through, the, through as an expression of one queer character to another. Um, it didn't before either because I'm a fucking sap. But, <laughs> you know, like when I look at it through a queer lens, it reads quite differently. Well, it reminded when I was reading through this outline and I got to that part, it reminded me of the conversation we had. My dad was worried about us going to Pride because he violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember you saying, like, we have to go because we can. Yeah, literally, there's like queer people have to worry about violence everywhere we go you know like why should we avoid going to uh, a celebration of our existence and an intentional retaliation against heteronormativity when we already have to fear violence yeah you know Um, at least you'll be around people too yeah maybe do something my dad was terrified yeah 
Uh, queer people continue living and loving even though it's hard and sometimes dangerous and scary because we can, because we have to, because trying to shove ourselves into a loveless box to please people who won't accept us anyway is to choose death. Like, maybe not literal death, but figurative death is bad enough, right? <laughs> Um, I'd also like to note that Lee Pace is a queer man who was he was accidentally outed by Ian McKellen. Yeah, during the Hobbit date. No, Ian McKellen. I can't remember what the question was. Somebody asked Ian McKellen a question and he said something about Lee Pace also be I think he said he was gay. I'm not sure if Lee Pace I I don't think Lee Pace has been like explicit about his sexuality. Just his attractiveness. Just his attractiveness. And he has a handsome partner too, who's oh, really? a photographer. That's why there's so many hot pictures of Lee oh, Pace. Oh, that days. makes so much sense. If I if I remember correctly, his partner is a photographer. Um and he has a beautiful dog. Uh I was discussing this the other night. I don't normally care that much about celebrities. Oh, wow. And I wouldn't be, um, I wouldn't normally be starstruck by meeting a celebrity. But if I met Lee Pace, I think I would full on Victorian faint. Like I would swoon. That's fair. He's so fucking handsome. Um, anyway, so again, I would like to note that Lee, pa- Lee Pace is a queer man. Um, and he was the subject of a whole bunch of scrutiny after he was outed. And I think again, and I want to say 2016, 2018 era, um, people were really nasty to Lee Pace about his sexuality and like him not choosing like him not coming out with a label. People were like demanding that he give himself a label. Um, He uh, Lee Pace no doubt knew when he said why love something because we can that it applied to him too. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the context of 2006 to 2007, when the show first aired, this is a really strong statement. This is pre marriage equality. Um, some of our listeners may be younger and don't realize like marriage equality is a really recent development and it, it truly is it's so sad like I remember yeah marching in the streets yep and and the thing the thing with it is like yes marriage is a heteronormative construct etc cetera, etc cetera, but marriage equality also grants rights to immigrants who are you know fleeing um fleeing places that are not as friendly to queerness it grants you the ability to see your partner in the hospital like there are like, yes, we need to disentangle the idea of marriage from heteronormativity and like marriage should not be the be all end all goal of every relationship. But some people want that. Some people want that. And in our society, it is so entrenched that to not have the rights of marriage equality is a denial of a number of other rights. Um, Just like even like property rights. Yeah. Um, If, if you're not married and your partner dies and there's no will. Mm hmm. You could be fucked. Mm-hmm. It could go to family that are horrible. Yep. Absolutely. And so, like, I understand the the desire to push back against um, marriage as, like, the the end of the struggle for gay rights. I totally understand that and agree with it. But we also under- have to understand that, like, marriage as a right holds a lot of value in our culture. And before we had that, queer people did not have those rights. I remember being a kid and just being flabbergasted that it's illegal. Mm-hmm. I couldn't understand. I literally, I literally still can't understand it. Yeah. It's nobody's goddamn business. Yeah. Keep, keep the government out of my fucking right? house. Um, this is also pre, uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, now commonly known as PrEP, uh, which helps prevent contracting HIV. We did not have that prior to this. We had condoms um but still do we still do have condoms um 
but while the world was becoming more accepting of queer people, uh, the very fact that Fuller had to resort to making this queer love story about a man and a woman with a masculine name, he did that intentionally, based on the idea that they can't be intimate or she'll die, shows how much of a different world it was in 2006 oh, to 2007. It was truly, truly very different. Yeah. It truly was very, very different. I Like, I remember, and I'm sure this still happens today, but it, it was probably around this time that I came out to my friends and... One, I don't know that everybody heard me or they didn't remember. Uh, And two, like two weeks later, one of them told me that um, she didn't believe in bisexuality. And that was just a thing that you could voice without like any pushback. You just felt okay saying something like that. I I remember when you told me and just being like, I thought you just said you like to kiss girls because you thought they were pretty like in a in like, though, that girl's pretty. I would like to um, respectfully kiss her on the mouth. It all made sense. Though. Everything yeah. kind of split it's in place. It's heteronormativity, right? Yeah. Like, it's not like I think that you're uh, homophobic. No, I just now all my like literally all my friends. Yeah, you just queer. been sipping. You've just been sipping that heteronormativity. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's my joke. <laughs> Thanks. I'll be here every week. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks. Bye. Let's see another podcast. Um. Anyway, this this all of this happened not that long ago. And as much as it feels normalized now, we still have to fight to hold on to these rights, particularly right now. Yeah, Like that's becoming increasingly clear that like the rights that we have won so far are not entrenched. We still have to fight for them. It's awful. awful. It is. It is Absolutely fucking awful. Fucking awful. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even remember what that section was. I don't know. I It was I, queerness, but we're going to keep talking about queerness. Yeah. Uh, we don't stop. We we don't stop. Can't stop. Won't stop. Can't stop. Won't stop. Um. So this next section is about isolation. Uh, as we discussed briefly, all of the characters in the show experience some degree of isolation from other people. Right? Nobody in the show is thriving. <laughs> um, not even Digsby. Not even Digsby. Uh, even if they think they are, they are not thriving. Those those strawberries he brings back. They're thriving. They're thriving. Um. At best, I think you could say that the characters are happy enough, like they're content. Uh, but I also think that there's some degree of self-delusion there, right? I think probably the most deluded character in the show is Ned. I would so agree with that. He's just like, yeah, it's fine. It's fine that I walk around with my hands in my pockets and I can't touch another living person. This is fine and normal. Yeah. Um, I do love the stories of him accidentally touching dead animals. Yes. It's very like good. the bear skin. Oh, God. Um. They clear all of these characters clearly want things that they can't have, right? So this is a quote from Pushing Daisies Away: Community Through Isolation uh, by Matt Dauphin. Um, there is a book I didn't realize when I said last week that I or in our last episode that I wasn't going to have to read a whole book of criticism about this. There is a whole book of criticism about Pushing Daisies, and I did read it. Um, all of it, yeah. Not surprised. So this is a quote from Pushing Daisies Away, Community Through Isolation by Matt Dauphin, who writes, Analysis of Pushing Daisies reveals a form of this abjection, not to isolation, but to community itself. Each character displays an inability to exist within society to varying degrees, forcing them to find alternatives. The pie hole itself is an orifice that can take in and protect, interiorize, and externalize through eating and consumption, as well as the process of enunciation and often fragile attempts to communicate. 
Though most of the main characters interact with the world at large, it is seldom without reserve or hesitation. This hesitation is not mere reluctance, but is more a moment of pure abhorrence, of externalized revulsion. For Ned, the prospect of integrating himself into a community, with its concurrent risk of, re- of rejection and judgment, prompts him to remain insular. It is too frightening to risk personal attachments. To apply the theory of abjection, community and belonging have become the objects of fear or re- or repulsion, but community is not without its own allure. The characters come to function as surrogates for one another in the communal interaction they cannot have. The role of community then becomes increasingly important to understand. So abjection, just as a refresher, um, is that feeling of uh, revulsion and attraction at the same time, where it becomes quite confusing because you want it and also you are disgusted by it. Like enemies to lovers. Yes, and that is how uh, the... community works in this show they want it they want community but they are also deathly afraid of it um none of these characters can function in a normal society right (laughs) ned walks around terrified that someone will discover his secret uh chuck very publicly died Uh, emerson is a grumpy private investigator olive is maybe the most capable of interacting with normal people but she's also so wrapped up in her feelings for ned that nothing really else nothing else seems to really exist to her it really all comes back to ned Um, she also just has this issue which i also have of just like starting to talk and people being like what and her being like never mind yeah she she's used to uh being the not special one in a group of special ones yeah um Predictably, over time, these characters come together to form their own community, right? That's fine. I don't think it's particularly interesting, even though it does fold quite neatly into a lot of queer experiences to have that idea of found family. It's not a bad thing. It's just not itself particularly interesting. Um, I do think it's interesting, though, that almost every character they come upon who gives off the appearance of normalcy or success is usually revealed to be lying or disgruntled or otherwise not what they appear to be. Uh, I think there is this sort of destabilizing of normalcy because of it. Like, yes, it has the typical found family arc and feel, but I think it goes a step beyond that by questioning what normal is and whether it can exist at all, especially in this bizarro world that seems like set apart from time. That idea of destabilizing normalcy is itself queering. That's like in the academic sense. That's Mm -hmm. kind of what's happening there. Um, This is a quote from Consuming Grief and Eating Pie by Lauren Ann Williams, who writes, The series emphasizes the distinction between other characters and Ned and his abnegative lifestyle through his visual visual representation. He is slim-bodied and accompanies very sorry, occupies very little space with his hands often crammed deep in his pockets, clasped behind his back, or arms crossed tightly across his chest. His wardrobe consists entirely of white, black, and shades of grays. The lack of color in his dress is emphasized by the abundance of bright colors and lush textures worn by each of the other principal characters and typifying the technicolor mise-en-scene. Um... All of the characters have very distinct styles of dress that do different things for them. Uh, Chuck is dressed quite feminine, but also more specifically, especially in early episodes, in fashions out of the 1950s. Uh, There was an essay in this book all about the fashion, uh, which was quite good. I just couldn't quote all of it. Some of the fashion was so good, and sometimes I'm like, take that off. Yeah. (laughs) Take that off. (laughs) In black and white, she might look more like our expectations for femme fatales. Like, if we just saw a black Mm. and white screenshot, especially in... I want to say it's the third episode when she's wearing, or maybe it's the second episode when she's wearing that very broad sloped hat mm-hmm. and the dress with like a deep V that's red. Um, if you just saw that in black and white, you could mistake her for a femme fatale, like mm-hmm. from a classic film noir. Um, all of that first to seem almost exclusively in pie hole uniforms, uh, meaning that she lacks an identity outside of the restaurant and therefore outside of Ned. We just don't see her in anything but her pie hole uniform. 
Uh, Emerson dresses in nice suits with bold patterns and colors, which gives him both a put together appearance and a sense of eccentricity like in our own world. Um, as much as he might like to be the quote unquote straight man of the group, his uniqueness shines through as well, even though it is quite literally buttoned up, right? He wears the flamboyant ties and shirts under the more structured suit. Um, Just like he knits in his office. Exactly. Uh, and interestingly, in this extremely colorful world, Ned wears almost entirely grays, blacks, and whites. I didn't notice this. I didn't at first either. Um, he only wears color when it's to go undercover. Like when he uh, goes to um, the B the bee company and he has to wear his cute little bee outfit. <laughs> um, and uh, in comfort food when he wears like the very bright uh, vest and hat. Stripes. Yes. Um he only so because he only wears color when it's to go undercover and otherwise he wears grays and blacks and whites and so on it visually signals his isolation not just from other people who wear more colored outfits but from the world as a whole right he does not fit in with the rest of the world just visually um he does not even seem to belong to it at all which i think reflects the unnatural status of his powers but also his isolation from the world um but i also think it goes further than that he is visually visually duller than the rest of the characters. It may be that he simply likes a monochrome wardrobe, but I also think there's the sense that he is keeping some aspect of himself tamped down. Like there is an intentionality to the way that he dresses, which is so like just nothing compared to everybody else, right? There's an intentionality to it to me that suggests he is saying to others, do not look at me. Mm -hmm. Don't perceive me. Um, He's just handsome and tall. God, God, God. Uh, now, within the context of the show, right, he is tamping down his power. He does not want people to see him because he is afraid of what they will discover about him and what effect that's going to have on him. But if we view his power as a metaphor or like a sideways way of talking about the queer experience, it becomes a lot more interesting. It, does. Um, this it is- also feels like he's like stopping stupid uh-huh because he especially like when he's like i'm don't want to be a superhero i'm just like stop just stop just stop just stop man uh this is a quote from consuming grief and eating pie by laura on williams who writes ned's refusal to revive the dead is of note because it figured largely in the language of closeting sorry it is figured largely in the language of closeting his desire for normalcy and to fit in requires the denial and suppression of a significant aspect of his identity in fact the entire episode of window dressed to kill and the series at large is replete with characters and subplots that are easily read for gay subtext. This, this one was, yeah. Yeah. Ned is, quote unquote, in the closet, however you want to view that closet, uh, for much of the series in that he keeps his power under wraps for fear of what might happen to him if he doesn't. He right? literally keeps his his moldy food in a closet. Yep. Uh, but when he chooses, like, and what's the, re- what's the reason? It's already bad. It's not going to go worse. He doesn't want people to see how. I guess that's he true. He doesn't want people to see it. Yeah. Mostly um, Olive. Yes. Uh, she should have, like, Olive should have known much sooner. Like, they should have told her so much sooner. I know. Sooner. What do they think was going to happen? I think that it was going to get out. Olive's not particularly good at keeping secrets. That is true, but neither <laughs> is Chuck. That's true. Neither is Chuck. But Chuck had to know. They couldn't keep it yeah, from Chuck. She, she kind of did know that she died. <laughs> Um, but when he chooses not to use his power at all, Ned is actively choosing to deny that part of him, that part of himself and play normal. Um, I don't think this series aims to make a one-to-one metaphor between queerness and Ned's power. Uh, just like I don't think this show is clear queer representation, right? Uh, but I do think it is informed by that idea. And when we look at it through that lens, it changes the tone of things like Ned 
quote unquote trying Ugh. on a relationship I'm with so Olive. I'm mad at Ned. I, I know. I literally was like, you're an asshole. I know. It was so You're awful. such an asshole. She's trying so hard. Um, obviously, it doesn't work out and Olive feels used because it was never about Olive. And Ned plays with her feelings by doing that. Chuck also says that it hurts her that he is flaunting this fake relationship with Olive's family when they have to keep their relationship a secret from her family, which again calls to mind the idea of denying romance between people of the same gender, right? The idea that he has a fake girlfriend that makes that lets him try on what it would be like to be out and proud when he can't when he has to deny the relationship between him and the woman that he loves if this sounds interesting then you should read the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo (laughs) um so with queerness in mind Ned is denying that he is queer at all by not using his powers and trying to force himself into a normative relationship and it makes everybody miserable um, what makes this especially playful to me is that Olive's family, in this case, her like sort of adoptive fathers, are themselves quoted as queer, right? And that they're two men who serve as partners in crime and who both play a caring father figure to her. When the, With the queerness lens, Ned is effectively like performing heteronormativity and denying his queerness to help his friend impress two queer men. No wonder it doesn't fucking work out, right? <laughs> like, it's it's just kind of hilarious nonsense yeah um do you have anything else to say about that idea of isolation no okay uh i don't have too much to say i'm not queer so like this is this for me was a lot of learning yeah um so now i want to talk about time this was not something i really thought about in advance uh but the topic of queer time came up right before i watched the episode where chuck's father comes back and she tells ned that they're reenacting the teenage life they didn't have um, I'd also been thinking about why the show gets so specific with time periods, which there are a number of explanations for. Um, so this brings up the question, which people may not be familiar with, um, the concept of queer time. I was not familiar with this. Yeah, it was actually, this conversation at Pride. Yeah, this is because this is why I was thinking about it. We were at Pride and I was explaining the concept of queer time to Mary. Because I feel old. Because Yeah, because Mary feels old. Um, I'm 33, about to turn 34 in August. Yeah, and I don't feel old at all. I'm the same age as Mary. Yeah, we're I'm like a couple months. Ch- apart. Yeah, I'm like two or three months younger than Mary, and I don't feel old at all. Um, I feel old in some ways in that, like right now, I have gastritis, uh, which means that I can't stop burping and my stomach hurts. But as we'll as we'll hear, I feel old because I'm straight. Yeah, it's not a joke. And it was so it was so funny. It was so funny because again, I said, remember when you're like, you said something about I like pushing daisies. I don't like it as much as you do. And then and then you're like, let me guess. It's because I'm straight. And I said, yes, Yes. I meant that mostly as a joke in that moment. But after I watched that episode where they talk about the idea of like reliving their teenage years, I I was like, appreciate that the same way. I was like, oh, shit. No, I wasn't actually kidding. Was I? I, Yeah, because I literally just cannot in, in the in the life I have led consume that the same way you can consume it yeah it, i mean it's still like interesting it's just but it's different it's like i because i think i appreciated that about the show before i had ever heard of queer time so i guess we should explain what queer time yeah, yeah, yeah. is so this is a quote from queer time the alternative to adulting by sarah jaffe who writes queer scholar jack halberstam's 2000 book 2005 book in a queer time and place argues that quote queer uses of time and space develop in opposition to the institutions of family heterosexuality and reproduction unquote queerness itself is i was right when we were having this conversation (laughs) um queerness itself is quote an outcome of strange temporalities imaginative life schedules and eccentric economic practices unquote it is inflected 
sorry, it isn't. Yeah, it is inflected by time warping experiences as diverse as coming out, gender transitions and generation defying tragedies such as the AIDS epidemic. That is, queerness is constituted by its difference from conventional imperatives of time. It follows then that art and literature made by queer artists might explore, extol or simply be the product of a queer relationship to time. So the journey from adolescence to adulthood is often defined by a number of milestones, right? Like things like your first kiss, your first partner, graduating high school, attending college, getting married, having children. Those are generally speaking milestones on the path to adulthood. Um, For a long time, some of those things were not accessible to queer people at all. Simply not, not, not available. (laughs) Um, not an option. Even now, those things may be accessible, but not in the same way or at the same time. Even attending college, you, like if you're going to BYU, mm-hmm. like you you could po- possibly be kicked out. Yep. Or even after you've graduated, take your degree away. Yep, absolutely. So those things may be technically accessible, but not in the same way or at the same time as they are to straight or cis people. Because of this, queer people's sense of time may be different from straight and cis people. Not in the sense of hours passing. Like time does not literally pass differently for me as for me as it does to Mary. Like I'm not time traveling while Mary travels at normal speed. Imagine. Imagine. Uh, But in the sense of life development, you often end up with queer people only becoming their fullest selves when they are in their 20s or even later, which moves the expected adult goals to much later in life. Um, And also just like not universally, but a lot of like my conversations with other queer folks have been a lot of like, oh, I didn't expect I would make it to 30. I didn't expect to be alive this long. That's crazy. So the fact that I'm alive at 30 is itself, well, I'm 33. Celebration. Yeah, that it, that itself is like a new lease on life to to have this goal, this, it wasn't even a stated goal. I just did, assumed I wouldn't be here by 30. Mm-hmm. So the fact that I am alive at 30 is itself like, a whole new life beginning. I think that's part of the difference too because like I never really felt like I don't really feel like I do now kind of feel like an adult but like I've said I can go through that list and I've hit a lot of those milestones Mm -hmm. which is part of the reason I feel old because I'm trying to have a kid and it's not working Um, but like I don't have that like oh I'm never going to make it to 30 so I feel like that's where that difference comes like I'm 33 years old still go to Disneyland all the time I still I still feel like a kid like I'm 20 but I still also feel old and I think that's part of where that difference is coming in Mm -hmm. yeah and I think it's I think your relationship to adulthood is fundamentally different from Mm -hmm. mine Um, my biological clock is ticking whereas I don't what clock (laughs) what fucking clock I would be curious if you wanted to have kids if it would feel any different it might but it, but that like is unfathomable to me. It is changing though because a lot of women are having children much later than they used to. Yeah. It's also um, more studies are coming out that it's not as not as dangerous to have children as you get older than they previously thought. Probably because they wanted you to have kids yeah. sooner. Um, this isn't a universal experience, right? The idea that like a lot of queer folks who are approaching thirty or in their thirties or even later um, that they don't necessarily feel as adult as they're like cis or straight i would be really curious i think i want people to let us know i think that'd be i'd be really curious to know if other people feel this yeah i have heard it mentioned on queer eye before Mm -hmm. um and when they when they helped a um a trans person and talking about the way that they dress they dress like they were much younger than they are because um one of them talked about how it's really common because they are finally living out an adolescence mm-hmm. essentially or like their teen years even though they're 24 literally both uh 
both figuratively and biologically. Yeah. Because like starting hormone therapy is going to change your body. Yeah. Or and even like prolong like uh prolonging puberty. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So like this isn't a universal experience and I, I really wonder how it's changing with uh with like the younger generation. I would be super curious. Yeah, like people people who are growing up under marriage equality who are able to be out when they're kids like how is that impacting the sense of time like are they feeling adult along with their cis or straight counterparts or are they still experiencing queer time and more and more people like the younger generation are are queer Mm -hmm. i mean i wouldn't say more than normal like than previous years more Mm -hmm. are out (laughs) yeah yeah well and even just understand it gets very complicated because like Everybody has a right to use whatever label fits them best. But like as our understanding of gender and sexuality broadens, um, it becomes like harder, I think, to definitively pin. Uh, Like I think the big the big thing is with straightness. I think it becomes Mm -hmm. hard to definitively say what straight means. I there's a really good TikTok um, from this girl who's like uh, me coming out to my mom was actually my mom ter- coming out because mm-hmm. she told her mom, "Hey mom, like I like women, uh, I think they're beautiful." And she goes, "Of course, you all women are beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like I love women. Like I love how women look." And she's like, "Mom, I think that you're not straight." <laughs> <laughs> like I think I think just as our ideas broaden, it becomes um, difficult to align with labels that worked that that felt hard and fast in mm-hmm. the past um and they don't necessarily feel that way anymore uh especially as we like get get closer to understanding that like sex and gender are not a binary um it becomes more complicated i think to say like yes i am straight but also i have attraction to people who are different genders from me but not in not like not the opposite gender i actually i i was thinking about this Someone on watch a TikTok where somebody asked somebody like, um, "Are you?" I can't remember if they asked them if they were straight, but they asked if they would date a, a trans man, and it made me think like, "Would I date a trans man?" Yes, I would because I think trans men are men, mm-hmm. but that'd be still be a queer relationship. Mm-hmm. But I am straight. They talk about this in sex education, and I think that's real. I think all this is so interesting. Yeah, I think I think that like overwhelmingly, it's a good thing. It just makes the labels that previously felt uh, limiting now feel very like, oh. Is it as, is it as like hard and fast as I thought it was? It may not be. Um, anyway, that's off track, but <laughs> it was interesting. Um, so yeah, this isn't a universal experience, but it it feels common enough to apply to like all of the queer friends I have discussed it with. Mm-hmm. Um, we all have this distorted sense of adulthood and adolescence that differs from our straight and or cis friends. Um, this is a quote from Neophobic Ned Needs Neotony, Neuroses and Child's Play by Angi Len or Angi Len. I'm not sure. Neotony. Neotony is a fear of the new. No, ah. wait, I'm sorry. Uh, neophobic is the fear of the new. Neotony, I think, is uh, new changes. Okay. Um, when Chuck's father wants Ned to stay away from her, Chuck tells Ned to think of her father's attitude as a way to relive their teenage years to, quote, break curfews and mislead our parents and generally sneak around, unquote. She's amused that her father is giving her first boyfriend a hard time. She refers to herself as a flirty head cheerleader and Ned as the studly varsity quarterback. This appeals to Ned because as he was growing up, he probably was not able to have such adolescence experiences. Also, Chuck was his first love, and when she was alive, they were not able to have a relationship because they were separate 
separated as children. In the final episode of the series, when Chuck has to stay home while the gang goes to the Aquacade to protect Lily and Vivian, Ned correlates it to Chuck serving detention while they go off on spring break without her, (laughs) though she says she does not mind. Ned seems to know that Chuck likes these childish illusions because it gives them both a second chance together. So Ned and Chuck didn't have these experiences for other life reasons. Ned was a closed off kid afraid of his gift. Um, And also he was an outcast at his school. Um, And Chuck was tending to her shut in ants, right? So they weren't able to have these experiences. But they also have this distorted sense of time because of that, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Their adolescences were non-normative. And as adults, they still have this lingering non-normative sense of time. They're both approaching 30. They're 29 in the show. Um, but have not had their big milestones. Ned has had girlfriends, but Chuck is not. Neither are married, nor are they anywhere close to it. And they are certainly not having children, right? Yeah. Um, so they relive their adolescence together, now embracing the people that they could have been all along if they had had the opportunity to do so. I wonder if there's anything to... Um, when when Chuck is talking to her father and she asked him how it felt and he said it was like floating. She said it was nothing to her. It was just it was just alive. And then mm-hmm. Ned. I wonder if there's anything there. Could be because I thought that was really interesting that there are two different experiences. Mm-hmm. And I thought originally that's oh he was dead longer, but after this conversation, maybe not. Yeah, she's yeah. It's hard to say. I didn't really think about that, so I don't have a an answer. Why not? I'm sorry. Um, again, this relationship, right, is not textually queer, but viewed through a queer lens, it echoes the experience of many queer people in that, like, for me, I, uh, I, like I said, came out in high school. It, no one believed you. No one believed me, I guess, or wasn't listening. I'm unclear on what happened when I came out. I just think there, I think there are a couple things happening. I think being bi was just not something people understood. Right. Um, one of like the biggest. We understood being gay because I came out in a car with a gay man yeah um i mean we had the the big conversation uh i don't you probably didn't watch real world but uh one of the gay men on there said being bi and this is common um is just uh what you do before you come out it's gay right um and i also have think the issue was no one just took you seriously quite possibly and they just people also thought i couldn't build a fire and i'm actually quite good at it it's because you're bi yeah it's because I'm i'm really good at starting fires yeah um Anyway, uh, so like my experience was was that attempt to come out in high school and then like being like, well, I don't really count because I've only ever been with a man and I only plan to ever be with a man, which is not because I was denying my sexuality, but because I've only ever been with one person. I married him Um, (laughs) and then kind of going back and forth in my 20s, like, am I allowed to call myself bisexual? Am I bisexual? Yeah, and then finally deciding, fuck it all, I'm out, <laughs> and I'm pretty positive that experience is common. Yeah, especially among especially among bi people who you know yeah. are attracted to people of different genders and who can essentially deny their sexuality for a long time. Yeah, it got, the thing with me was people kept telling me I was straight. Like they kept saying, "Oh, well, you're straight. Oh, well, you're straight." And I'm like, "I'm fucking not. <laughs> I'm fucking not. I'm not though." Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure at this point I'm not. Um, I'm pretty sure if you and Josh would have a breakup, I don't know if you'd ever date a man again. Probably not. Like, unless it was like... Lee Pace. Yeah. Or <laughs> He's busy. Um, I don't know. There's some others. There's some others. There's a few. But uh, yeah. So like my mid-20s to me was when I effectively came out again. And 
my life is different the rest of your life literally like my life is actually notably different after that point now i never shut up about being bisexual because i don't want everybody i don't want anybody to make that mistake again um because it's irritating and it's important to you it is important to me. oh why um, shouldn't i be able to go around and say that i'm straight all the time huh why shouldn't i be able to go around and say i'm straight all the time no one's stopping you <laughs> i'd be so literally dumb. nobody's stopping you straight pride hi i'm straight i'm cool straight. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm straight. <laughs> um, this is a quote from Fashion, Femininity, and the 1950s, Costume and Identity Negotiation and Pushing Daisies, which is by Alyssa Berger, who writes, However, Chuck's future is similarly unsettled. While her embrace of structured 1950s-style clothes emphasize her femininity, she is unable to pursue a traditionally romantic feminine role in her relationship with Ned, since she will be returned to death if they touch. In this way, both Chuck's idealized past and future are outside of her reach. In this case, nostalgia becomes the only suitable stand-in and this approach is embraced by chuck in her childhood recollections and her dreams for the future including a job an apartment of her own and her desires for her and ned's future together as well as in her fashion another element of nostalgia that resonates particularly strongly with chuck is that as john bertrand pontelet pontelet argues quote nostalgia carries the desire less for an unchanging eternity than for an than for always fresh beginnings unquote Chuck was literally given a second chance at life when Ned brought her back to life with a touch of his magical finger and reflecting on this new beginning, she decides that, quote, dying's as good an excuse as any to start living. So beautiful. So Chuck being alive again, but also unable to really live her life because people might recognize her as the dead tourist. uh, She further isn't able to live her life according to the typical milestones, right? Those options are simply denied. She cannot have them. Um, This is a really interesting interpretation of nostalgia, which is usually seen as longing for the past. But in Chuck's case, since she had her life ended prematurely and got a fresh start, she is longing for the potential of her early life where she could have lived everything differently. Um, She now has a greater appreciation for what it means to be alive and she plans to make the most of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Nostalgia for her isn't really about wanting to go backward. It is about wanting to go forward with the same potential she had when she was younger. She's now exploring all of those milestones that the relationship between the the cheerleader and the (laughs) and the and the the football player like she's she's exploring those things now. Even that episode when they like fake being strangers. Um, is itself that idea of like getting a fresh start and starting over again because she has the ability to do so. Now that she's alive again, she has an increased desire to really live her life, but also a reduced ability to do it. Um, again, this isn't an exact replica of what it means to be queer, but there is still that feeling for many queer people of reaching your 20s, being surprised that you're still alive and feeling the need to really, truly live your life without the fear that has been holding you back up until that point. Um, and like, of course, you know, every people, every person, regardless of their, you know, gender, sexuality, et cetera, like often the, your 20s is about becoming the person that you are. But I also think it's a very different experience for um, kids who grew up queer and closeted who reach, you know, adulthood and independence for the first time and go buck fucking wild yeah. because they have haven't they've been having to keep that like so close to their chest for their entire life. Can you imagine if Ned's ability went away? what he and chuck would get up to because it's a lot lots of sex like and again like i, I th- p and v sex yeah i think that that um again it's not queer itself but it mirrors the queer experience yeah. of like when you have to deny something for so long because of danger and your fear of what is going to happen to you and your fear of what is going to happen to your loved one when you finally no longer have that fear like you want to go buck fucking wild you know um 
Do you have anything else to say about the time thing? No, it's very interesting to me. It is. It it was really interesting to me when it when I first learned about it because I was like, I never thought about it before, but I do feel comparatively very young for my age, and I feel old. Um, it's then that's why it's strange for me to hear that you're old, that you feel old. <laughs> I'm, I'm older like, than you. You're older than me by <laughs> three months. Barely, like yeah, two, just, just barely. It's two months. I'm in the end, and you're in the beginning. Yeah, it's like two months and, and like two days. Um, but I really do. I feel like I'm running out of time. Mm-hmm. I, but I also have that the the idea of milestones. Like it was important to me to get married. It was important to me to buy a house. It was. Imp- it's important to me to try to like these are <laughs> things that are important to me. Right. And sometimes I look back. I'm like, yeah, it was good that I bought a house. And sometimes I look back like on my wedding and be like, I tried to be too traditional on that, and that wasn't me. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes those hitting those milestones works, and sometimes it doesn't. But I definitely think when we had that conversation, I it 100 goes to me wanting to do things that are what a lot of straight people do and not even have to think about that. Right. And I think it's just really interesting. Yeah. Like when I look back at those milestones for myself, I don't know how I have a house. I'm still confused (laughs) about it. Uh, My wedding was over in less time than it takes to get through. Wedding was great. You make my dreams by Hall & Oates. Graduated college. I did graduate college. But you didn't Much later than usual. I did too, though. Uh, I wasn't, there was a lot of things going on with why it took me so long to graduate college. Um, I didn't have a good group of friends really until, uh, until college, like until I went to the four year university and you're never going to have kids and I'm never going to have kids. I don't want kids. I don't want to adopt. I don't want children at all. I want pets. Yeah. Pets. Yes. And where I really, I'm trying really hard to get pregnant. Yeah. Do you have anything else to say about time? It's an illusion. It is an illusion. It's not real and you're not old. I know I'm not old. But if you're I, old, I'm old and I'm not I old. I felt like I'm getting old since I was like 25. My that, sister that, feels the same way. And I think that's the thing is I think you're both straight. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry that you have to be confined to time like this. I'm sorry that I'm your token straight friend. I know. We all have one. <laughs> um, I think this is the last thing on the list is the idea of tension. Yeah. Um, like pride and prejudice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the isolation that comes from Ned's ability could be a source of sadness. And it often is, right? Like Ned is not a happy person. Um, <laughs> but Chuck is. But Chuck is. But this is not a sad show, no. right? Um, much like Ned's power, queerness can be a source of isolation or fear or sadness, but it doesn't have to be. And this is something I think more people need to understand. Just go to Pride. It was not yeah. sad. No. Um, it's only that way. It only feels that way because of how the world responds to it. If homophobia did not exist, there would be nothing sad about being queer at all. Personally, I love being bisexual. And I find a lot of joy in being bisexual. Like, not just like the fact that I can be bisexual, I mean literally being bisexual. I mean, when I look at a hot person and I'm attracted to them, that's a moment of joy for me. I'm like, my world is so open that I can, I'm so glad I can be attracted to different kinds of people. That that legitimately fills me with joy. Um, The implicate, I really resent the implication that there is something inherently tragic about being attracted to multiple genders because there isn't, right? There's there's nothing tragic about that. I don't feel fucking bad about it. I think that's changing a lot, though. I think you've grown up with so much media telling you it is. Yeah. Even among queer people, I have seen, and I'm not going to call the specific thing that I'm thinking (laughs) of out here, but I have seen like, oh, it's not okay to think that this character is queer because they have this other form of marginalization on it. 
happening and it would make them too it would make them too tragic and i'm like okay but actually it's not sad at all to be queer yeah like it's not i'm not fucking sad about it i'm yeah. i'm ecstatic that i get to be queer and i think it's amazing that people are queer i think it's amazing that people are not straight i think it's amazing that people are not cis like what fucking joy that we get to have to experience all these different methods of living and just yeah just like being able to experience life it's not it's not tragic to be straight either it's not tragic sometimes to be cis it feels like it <laughs> sometimes it feels like it. i like i think that these are all unique ways of living and none of them are inherently tragic and it frustrates me when people act as if any of them are um being a conservative straight person's tragic that's a decision that that somebody has made for themselves and yeah that's a decision that you made these are all just like different ways of of living and engaging with the world and i think that that's lovely and exciting and beautiful and um i'm going full lady gaga here never been seen before uh unbelievable unique etc etc um but like i i don't think that any of it is limiting like I think it's wonderful. I think that we can appreciate all of the different points of view that the world offers us and be excited about all of them and not feel like any one of them is tragic because it's society's fault that it feels tragic. It is not the thing itself is not tragic. Um, This is a quote from Pushing Daisies used quirkiness to bridge time and queer history by Kyle Turner, who writes, but Pushing Daisies neo screwball reflexes are also compelling given the genre's history of queer coding from masculine envy in the Philadelphia story to the sultry menage a trois of design for living. This postmodern impulse rears its head beyond the heavy dialogue and through visual gags, notably the wall in the pilot, uh, a nod to 50s Doris Day Rick Hudson. Rick Rock Hudson sex comedies like Pillow Talk, and in a sequence where Chuck has adorned herself with slippers with bells, prompting she and Ned to announce coming and going through the apartment. Its double entendre smirks throughout the scene, but their tete a tete is literalized. They're near bumping into each other, homage and update, wrought with as much dramatic tension, she might die, as erotic tension, but they want to make out. So, obviously, it's not super fun for the characters of Pushing Daisies to not be able to touch one another, right? Like, that's not fun. But we're not talking about real people here, right? We're talking about something created for dramatic tension. And the tension certainly happens. It feels almost Regency-like in how badly you want the characters to touch one another. But the consequences are even more dire than Mm -hmm. you would see in a Regency-era romance. But the show is so light in tone that despite the risk, you're not kept tense. Instead, you get to enjoy the, like delightful almost abjection of like wanting them to touch so badly but knowing that for them to touch would be horrible um drawing on the traditions the genre traditions of screwball comedy pushing daisies takes things that might be serious and makes them playful and fun instead the genre choice is important because without following those traditions you'd have a pretty depressing show like in another universe this is a really depressing story (laughs) Um, I cannot tell people how to feel about their own relationship with queerness, but I think this points to the idea of framing. Um, Ned's ability could be a curse or a gift, right? Depending on how he looks at it. He looks at it as a curse because it separates him from other people. Uh, To him, you know, it's not a good thing. Uh, To Chuck, it's a gift because it's what brought them together. It's what literally brought her back to life and what brought them together. He could be the second coming of Christ. Yeah. Um, similarly, the world often tells us that queerness is something shameful or morally wrong or deviant. And it's easy to believe that because we're bombarded with that mentality constantly, especially in the time period in which the show was made. Um, but it's not true, right? Like it's not 
real. It's a story that culture tells us. There is no moral component to being queer, no matter how much society tells us that there is. So reframing something that feels bad because society tells you it's bad can actually be really beneficial. Um, And it's interesting to consider this in the context of screwball comedy, as Turner points out, which is not only comedy, but also often uses queer coded, um, but uses like queer coded elements, something like some like it hot or bringing up baby. Um, It's important to note that while queerness could be part of the humor, queer people existed in Hollywood and worked on movies like this. Like it's not including queerness in, in old Hollywood was not just a matter of making fun of queerness. Queer people worked on these movies. They made these movies. They acted in these movies. They wrote these movies like they were present. They were doing this. Um, that's part of a big reason why homosexuality got lumped in with the Red Scare. Um, so uh, even straight people were sympathetic to queer folks in that time period. Right. Like it wasn't we like to look at the past and say it was all bad, but that's not true. Right. Mm-hmm progress is not linear we often take, clearly clearly we often take steps forward and then we take steps back and we go back and forth um homophobia existed of course uh but that didn't mean existence was miserable all the time right like people were still experiencing queer joy um this is from sweet talk in the pie hole language intimacy in public space by tara k parmiter who writes Uh, When the show debuted, San Francisco Chronicle critic Tim Goodman wondered if, quote, the unfulfilled romance may eventually test the viewer's patience, unquote. But his concern rises out of an understanding of romance that privileges the touch, the kiss, the physical Mm. union. Series creator Brian Fuller sees it another way. Quote, it's not so much about celibacy as it is about intimacy, he explains. Uh, Sometimes physicality gets in the way of true intimacy. So if that's removed from a relationship, what's going to happen? Unquote. Most romantic plots on television shows depend upon suspending the viewer's satisfaction, waiting until sweeps week or season finales for pivotal turns in the characters' romantic relationships. But we always expect that the the consummation will finally occur, that Ross and Rachel reunite by the end of Friends, that Maddie and David of Moonlighting will stop their flirting and lock lips, that Mr. Big will finally sweep Carrie Bradshaw off her feet and back in bed for some sex in the city. Ned and Chuck manage to smooch prophylactically (laughs) through plastic wrap, hold hands while wearing gloves, and spoon in bed with the aid of of a vinyl partition. But since they will never connect physically, they must forge their relationship through words, not the silent messaging of touch. So again, this could be tragic, right? It is, it feels like trying to imagine a relationship in which I could not touch my partner uh, feels terrible. (laughs) I don't want that. I don't want that. Um, In another genre, it could be terrible. Uh, But in Pushing Daisies, drawing on a variety of filmic traditions that include noir, fairy tales, and screwball comedy, among a bunch of others, Uh, It's instead used to explore other emotions, including the possibilities of sexual tension and also a deeper form of intimacy. Um, For many people, sex can be a means of avoiding difficult conversations, right? Um, Not always intentionally, but it can feel easier to express things and be vulnerable in a sexual context than to be vulnerable with language. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pushing daisies does not let that happen. They cannot escape the fact that they cannot touch one another. Therefore, they have to be vulnerable through their language. They have to use their words. They have to use their words. They have to talk to one another, which is kind of funny because Ned in particular is really bad at effective communication. Um, I bet he's got a dirty talk. Probably. He tends to speak in double negatives and he dodges questions, which fits in really well with the show's fast-talking dialogue. But again, I think this has another dimension when we look at it through a, cl- a queer lens. Uh, as we've discussed, Fuller was inspired by the HIV epidemic, with dispropor- which disproportionately... Good grief. You got it. Which disproportionately... 
affected queer people and was ignored for a long time for that reason. Part of the reason it got as bad as it did was because it was seen as a quote unquote clear, a queer plague that would never spread to the heterosexual population. And that is why the Reagan administration was content to just let millions of queer people die. They did not care because they did not think it would affect them. Or they thought this is good. Or the, yes, or they <laughs> thought it was a good thing, which God they did. Us this. Um, but since we're talking about a show that debuted in 2006, there's also the element of it not yet being socially acceptable to be gay. It was still considered deviant by a lot of people, even if that deviance was harmless. Like, I think by 2006-ish, we had shows like Will and Grace and stuff like that, where it's like, oh, queerness is kind of a quirky thing, um, but let's not be sexy about it, because that's weird. We don't want to know what's happening in the bedroom. They make references to this, too, like mm-hmm. side-eye references or sideways references to this with things like don't ask don't tell they make a reference to that in pushing daisies well there's also like around this time this like you heard it all the time of i don't care like you can be gay i just don't want to see it right like that was a really really common thing in my deepest stages of denial that came out of my mouth yeah i remember saying it and i remember going why did i say that (laughs) i talked to my dad my dad saw the movie milk um and which is about Harvey Milk. Harvey Milk, and he's a gay man. And he really loved it. But he goes, but I didn't need to see him have sex with a man. <laughs> I was like, well, that's a really important part yeah. of his life. <laughs> so sorry. Yeah. Um, so even if, you know, in 2006, 2007, 2008, we thought of queerness as, like, harmless, it was still weird, right? We weren't 100% on board with it. And when I say we, I mean mainstream culture. Um, it was scary to have someone for to have feelings for someone and try to discern if they were queer. So there were a lot of euphemisms, Cosmo drinking shopaholic, um, or coded conversations, or flagging, or ways of communicating without communicating, right? This seems so mentally and like mentally exhausting. Mm-hmm. And like I that would just be a really difficult way to live. Yeah, because like if I so say I'm attracted to somebody of of the same gender and I I see them across the bar and it's not a gay bar and I'm like, oh, I feel like she's making eyes at me, but I'm not sure. If I go over to her and I try to flirt with her, I could be attacked. Yeah. You know, I don't know what's going to happen. And so it becomes very difficult and scary to try to express yourself in any way. There's a lot of funny TikToks about this. Yeah. Like, um, is she interested or does she look just like my outfit? (laughs) Yeah. Um, There's a sense of vulnerability just to conversation among queer people when you don't know if the other person is queer and you can't ask directly, which gets especially ramped up when there is the fear of sexual contact. Um, It's just like the show being at its core about intimacy without touch is so fascinating to me. And again, it just kind of goes into that idea of this being a show informed by the queer experience, which we know it is because Brian Fuller's gay. Mm -hmm. And I think I want to say he's like in his 40s now. So he grew like he would have been, you know, coming of age during the AIDS epidemic. Right. I'm not exactly sure how old he is. He may have been. I'll look it up. Yeah. I want to say he's in his like mid to late 40s, but I don't know. I don't know anything. Um, So he grew up in this environment where he was like, a gay man who, you know, wasn't sure how to... He is 52. 52. So he's a little bit older. That When was he born? Uh, he was born July 27th, 1969. Oh, wow. He's older than... I, okay. 19, so he would have been in his tw- like 20s I mean, in the yes. 80s. Um, which, he does not look that... Well, maybe these are older pictures. It's, be, it's because he's gay. <laughs> Queer time. <laughs> I guess that's true. Um, I just made that up. 
So, like, again, the show is not explicitly about queer people, right? But it feels heavily informed by the queer experience. Um, There's a lot to like about Pushing Daisies, just generally speaking. It's a really original concept that mashes unexpected genres together. Uh, The acting, set design, and costumes are great. Uh, The story is engaging, even if it's a little more episodic than we expect of modern TV. I think that's the hardest thing about recommending Pushing Daisies today, is that it feels like a show from 2007. And that the it's like episode by episode by yeah. episode with with some through lines. But for the most part, you could watch any episode and be fine. Yeah. Um, Not true for a lot of TV. TV. Yeah. It just doesn't work like that anymore. Um, but the sense of longing and queerness that runs beneath the surface of it is, I think, what made it my favorite favorite show, even before I noticed that those things were happening. And why I felt this is good, but I don't like it like Missy does. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's a, f- and like, it's, I'm not saying that you have to be queer to like the show or like, if you, <laughs> if you do like this show a whole lot, if it's your favorite show and you're straight that you're secretly queer, that's not it. There's lots of things to appreciate it about the show. It just seems to line up well in this situation. It's, it is certainly, uh, a collection of my favorite interests. Um, but the sense of longing and queerness that runs beneath the surface, I think is what made it my favorite show. Even before I noticed those things were happening, it's a fantasy show and it isn't true in that sense, right? Like it's not true that this happened or that anything happened like this. Um, But it is a show about two people, you know, it's a show about two people of just different genders and their romantic life, among other things. Uh, But despite that, it still feels like a very true show about the queer experience because Brian Fuller is drawing from his own experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not that on-screen queer rep isn't necessary. Although, again, Lee Pace is a queer man. um, And, like, he may not be playing a gay man in Pushing Daisies, but I also think he's not not playing a queer man. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so it's not that queer rep isn't necessary, but rather that queer people are capable of telling all kinds of stories that showcase what it's like to be queer, even if they are not always read that way by everybody. Um, and just to be clear, this isn't like the Makora <laughs> is a queer relationship because one is a handmaiden and one is a feudal lord thing. Um, that's drawing on heteronormative gender roles and assuming that flip-flopping them is subversive in a straight relationship. I very purposefully did not argue this point by pointing to Ned's more reserved masculinity and Chuck's go-getter attitude. Like, I very intentionally did not make that argument. Queerness exists outside of heteronormativity, right? Heteronormativity is a construct. Queerness does not ad- have to adhere to heteronormativity when somebody asks well who's the man and who's the woman (laughs) like fucking nobody because heteronormativity isn't real right we're not constrained by borders not just queer people but straight people also cis and straight people are not confined by the borders of heteronormativity they don't have to be um nobody has to adhere to normative gender roles in our relationships or elsewhere that's why i didn't want to point to that idea of like oh well this is a queer show because um ned bakes pies and Emerson wears bright colors. It seems like that would be more of a, um, like, just like you said, but like gender roles. Yeah. That's, that doesn't, that's not inherently about queer life. Yeah. And I, th- I can't remember how much we talk. I, I know in one of our episodes, we talked about queerness existing outside of heteronormativity and this being like a very, like we were taking this really academic approach to something and I feel that like seems often well it was about that specifically and I was like I wouldn't be surprised if the creator of this thing was familiar with this aspect of oh what was that I, I wonder if it was Hannibal it be- might have been Hannibal because I feel like the same thing like again it's Brian Fuller I feel like the show is very purposeful about queering as a verb I know exactly what you're talking about yeah I wonder if it was Hannibal I'm not sure but though I feel like we would have known definitely he would be 
right? Yeah, I think he went to film school or something. But um, it feel this show feels to me purposeful, and it's like destabilizing heteronormativity as a whole, and not simply doing a gender flip, right? Not saying like, well, Chuck is the man and Ned is the woman, because that clearly isn't true, right? Um, it feels like it's doing something much more interesting than just like flipping our expectations. Instead, it's like saying, actually, your expectations are wrong. You shouldn't even have those expectations. Um, And anyway, I love pushing daisies. And I think Lee Pace is so handsome. Um, Anyone who doesn't is just a liar. God, he's so handsome. Yeah, That was an important part that we left out of the episode is how handsome Lee Pace is. And he's only gotten more handsome. God, do you follow him on Instagram? Because Uh, I don't think so. He's worth following. I don't know what the fuck his stories are so weird like he posted some pictures of himself the other day and then he just like put little rabbit gifts all over them I think and I don't know why might be I mean his Instagram name is leapfrog mm-hmm. um, I, I think he just might be a weird dude and I love that for him I love that for me and I love that for him oh yeah he's in bodies 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 I'm really excited for bodies bodies I bodies. am too and I'm really excited to see how they handle because they put all that like um social justice wording and stuff at the end. I trust Lee Pace. I'm very curious to see how they handle that. I trust him. Yeah, he's so attractive. <laughs> and that's why I trust him. He's wearing those good, those those real good, uh, you can't see it, James Bond short. Uh-huh. Um, do you have anything else to say about Pushing Daisies? Just that he's really hot. Also, the girl that plays Chuck literally looks the same. She does. She looks slightly she older. Um... So that's it for this episode. I've I've finally succeeded in my goal of doing a Pushing Daisies episode. Um, now what am I going to do with my life? Uh, if you like this, you can find us on our website at fakeygirlscast.com that has links to all of our previous episodes and is starting to have links to transcripts of our episodes. Uh, thank you to Emily June for helping out with this enormous project. Um, Emily is handling new episodes as they come out. Um, so roughly two weeks after an episode debuts we hope to have the transcript for that episode up i am handling the back catalog uh working on episodes like full episodes like this one first before doing what we've been up to uh you may not know this you guys but i'm super busy so the back (laughs) catalog the back catalog is going to take longer um but i do want to i am working on it it's just don't expect it to go super fast um if you like this and you're like, oh, I wish Missy could work more on this, uh, then all of you should donate to our Patreon it's so that true. I can quit my job and just do this podcast full time. It's true. Um, we're not anywhere close. To that. <laughs> um, maybe one day. Maybe one day. Um, but yeah, consider supporting us on Patreon. You get cool rewards like mail or access to our outlines, which include like the shit that we cut. Yeah. Because I can't talk about everything I want to talk about. I so I have to cut things. Sometimes this, we say stupid, funny things. That's true. Well, that does don't go in the outline. Oh, that's you have true. to pay more for that. That's that's the unedited episodes where you can hear all manner of depravity. That's true. Um, but yeah, and maybe one day you'll get our uh, spicy book reviews. Yeah, which we should do because I have the one. Next time, what we do in the shadows. Let me tell you, there's a lot of papers called What We Do in the Shadows. Mm-hmm. And I there are there's like some that are actually about what we do in the shadows, but the majority of them are not. Um they're about things like frogs, um 
and other weird stuff, like things I did not expect. But I'm very excited to talk about what we do in the shadows. After that, we're going to be doing Good Omens. Good Omens has won our poll. Uh, I plan to do both the book and the TV series. Uh, I have not watched the TV series. I have read the book. And I've heard very good things about the TV series and very bad things. Um, and I'm excited about it. I've, I have watched it and I liked it. Mm-hmm. I'm excited. And I think it's going to be really interesting to follow. I mean, it'll be a while after Pushing Daisies, but it'll be really interesting to talk about it after talking about Pushing Daisies. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so I will be gone one weekend in July. So the I believe the Good Omens episode will be later than expected. When I go to Disney, I won't be gone during the weekend. So I'll still be nice. able to do that. Um, but yeah, so there will be a weekend. There will be a Monday Just without one. an episode is what I'm trying to say. Um, and that's it. All right. Catch on the flip side.